We are continuing in our study of Judges. We're going to spend some time in Judges 13 and 14 today. A young boy had just gotten his driving permit. He asked his father if he could discuss the use of the car. His father took him to his study and said to him, I'll make a deal with you. You bring your grades up, study your Bible, and get your hair cut. Then we'll talk about it again. After about a month, the boy came back and again asked his father if he could use the car. They went to his father's study where his father said, Well, I've been real proud of you. You brought your grades up. I've seen you studying the Bible, but you still haven't cut your hair. And the boy said, Well, Dad, Samson had long hair. Noah had long hair. Jesus had long hair. His father said yes, and they walked everywhere they went. (laughs) We're continuing in Judges with Samson today, who is the last major judge in the book of Judges. And when it comes to the name Samson, what do you think of? Some will think immediately of Delilah. Others think of his super strength or his long hair. Some may think of him, still others think of someone who had amazing strength, but was a little naive when it came to women. Samson's ultimate demise by Delilah has always confused me. Surely he wasn't foolish enough to let Delilah trick him. What was he possibly thinking? Samson's life is one full of contradictions. Samson is a tragic hero whose amazing deeds are overshadowed by disastrous failures in his life. Samson was one who was empowered by the Spirit, even as his mind was dominated by the flesh. Samson was destined for greatness. Before he was born, Samson was chosen for this great mission by God. But his life is marked by both great triumph and great failures. Samson was the strongest man who ever lived. But he was also certainly one of the weakest. Samson was dedicated to God before his birth, but he was a man who seemed to mostly dedicate himself to only his desires until the day of his death. Samson's life is a sad tale of the consequence of wasted potential and of demanding your own way, the way that seems best to you. Samson had weakness for ungodly women. He pursued the weakness with reckless abandon until God abandoned him to the way that he chose to live his life. Though the Lord worked in Samson's life, Samson was determined to pursue his sin, and he reaped the consequences of that decision throughout his life. In Hebrews 11.32, Samson is mentioned as a man of faith, yet his life clearly displays areas of unfaithfulness. Samson was undisciplined, undependable, and unpredictable. He's a good illustration of James 1.8. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Samson is a good example of a man who struggled with his faith. A man who can tear a lion in two with his bare hands, but can't resist a pretty face. And I fear he represents many of us in our own walk for the Lord, strongly faithful in some areas, and surprisingly weak in others. Remember, we are called to be living sacrifices, continually seeking to do God's will in all areas of our life. In Judges 10, 6-7, last week we read that the Israelites had done evil in the sight of the Lord, and he had given them into the hands of the Ammonites and the Philistines. The judge Jephthah dealt with the Ammonites who were in the west, and this week we begin to learn how the Lord is dealing with the Philistines in the east. And it's a completely different story. The story of Jephthah 
does not contain any miraculous occurrences. When you read it, it seems like a pretty human story, which may be why we often overlook Jephthah. The story of Samson is much more exciting. It's full of supernatural events, beginning even before his birth. We're going to read of Samson's, the story of Samson's birth, starting in Judges 13, verses 1 through 5. Let's read that together. If you'd stand as I read just those few verses. Reading from Judges 13, 1 through 5. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines. A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to study it. Teach us through it. Fill us with your spirit this morning so that we can hear and so that we can learn and so that we can apply this to each of our lives. Help us take hold of this message so that when we go from here, it will have impact on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I apologize if thunder comes from the mic this morning when I cough. I'll try and cover it. But, and I will be drinking water, too. <laughs> Samson's story begins after the longest depression we read of in the book of Judges. It's also the final story of foreign oppression in the book of Judges. And like the story of Jephthah last week, it does not follow the cycle of sin that we've become familiar with in the book of Judges. The Israelites do evil, the Lord gives them over to a foreign power, they plead for a savior, he gives them a judge, and then they repent. Last week, God refused to help the Israelites, so they repented first, and then he helped them defeat the Ammonites. Here we see that the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he gave them over to foreign oppression, but we don't read that they asked God to deliver him. Apparently things have gotten so bad in this land that being ruled over by the Philistines, by this foreign power, isn't a cause of great distress. God's discipline is no longer working to draw the people back into a relationship with himself. They're okay living among the Philistines under Philistine laws and domination. But thankfully God does not leave them here in that state. Instead he raises a judge for them. And this is a unique way for him to raise a judge. He calls a judge for Israel from the womb. In Zorah, a town about 15 miles west of Jerusalem, the angel of the Lord comes to a barren, unnamed woman, and he tells her that she will give birth to a son. He is one of a handful of men whose birth was predicted, and one of three whose birth was predicted to someone who was unable to have children. Sarah was one, and Sarah's reaction we read in Genesis 18 to the news of Isaac was to laugh. 
Said Sisera, laugh to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Zechariah was another example, father of John the Baptist. In Luke 1.18 we read, Zechariah said to the angel, what proof is there for this? I am an old man and my wife is beyond her childbearing years. And I love the angel's response, it's incredulous that he gives to Zechariah before he takes Zechariah's voice away. The angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in God's presence. God sent me to tell you this good news. Zechariah, who was first shaking in fear at this angel's appearance in the temple, dares to ask the angel for proof. And the angel replies, I'm Gabriel. I stand in God's presence. God sent me to tell you this. Samson's birth is not announced by Gabriel, but by the angel of the Lord. I talked about this briefly when I spoke about Gideon's call, but just as a quick review for those of you who may not have been here that week, when we read about the angel of the Lord, we aren't just reading of any angel, but a visible representation of God himself. This angel does things that God would do. He accepts worship, he accepts sacrifices, and he speaks directly as God himself. So the appearance of the angel of the Lord is known in theology as theophany, a theophany, a visible representation of God. And we see this happen a handful of times in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord appears to Hagar to comfort her when she flees from Sarah. The angel of the Lord appears to Abraham to stop him from sacrificing Isaac as he raises the knife, and to Moses in the burning bush, and to Joshua before the battle of Jericho. And in Judges, first to Gideon, and then twice here to Samson's parents. And how wonderful is this woman's, this unnamed woman's, reaction to this good news from the angel of the Lord. Unlike Sarah or Zechariah, when the angel of the Lord announces to this barren woman that she will have a son, there's no indication of any doubt in her mind of the veracity of that promise. She accepts the angel's word and goes to tell her husband. Her husband prays to God for some additional information, And soon the angel reappears and just merely confirms the message that he gave to the wife. The couple offers a burnt offering, and the angel does something that the Bible calls wonderful. He ascends in the fire. And Manoah, when he sees this happening, realizes that he has talked to God. He has seen God. And he begins to cry out in verse 22. He says, we are doomed to die. He said to his wife, we've seen God. But his wife reminds Manoah that God would not have promised them a son if he meant to kill them. And she's right. And in the final two verses of chapter 13, we read about the birth. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahana, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtel. Samson, from the time he was in his mother's womb, was to be set apart from God as a Nazarite. And if you'd like to read about the Nazarite vow, it's in Numbers 6, 1 through 12. The Lord, through Moses, describes how the Nazarite vow can be taken by anyone who wants to separate themselves from the world and draw closer to their God. They're to refrain from any fermented drink, they're to leave their hair uncut, and they're not to go near any dead body. 
And many people took the Nazarite vow, but usually the Nazarite vow was taken for a specific period of time and then completed with an elaborate sacrifice. But in the case of Samson, it was to be a lifetime vow. Samuel and John the Baptist were two other men who were lifetime Nazarites. This boy, the angel told him, was to begin to deliver them from the Philistines. And he was born, and his mother named him Samson. The name Samson means like the sun. We get the idea that she's proud of this little boy she has. And as we read, we read that he grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. And I think at the end of chapter 13, we're left with a great hope that maybe after all this time in Judges, we have a man that can do what God wants. God has given Israel the deliverer that they need, a man prophesied to deliver them from the time before he was born, a man set apart from the world around him by the Nazarite lifestyle, and a man who was blessed by the Lord and moved by his spirit. Maybe these dark days for Israel are over. And here is a man who would lead them in the ways of the Lord. Certainly it's hard to imagine a more auspicious birth. But then we turn the page, or we unroll the next scroll, and we find that for all Samson's potential, he was a flawed man. A man whose character was marked by earthly passions of anger and lust. And we also begin to wonder, at least I do, if these parents may have overindulged little Sammy a little bit and given him everything that he desired. Because when we read chapter 14, it begins with a demand from Samson. Chapter 14, verse 1, reads, Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go down to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents didn't know, but this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time they were ruling over Israel. I need an audience when I'm drinking water. Samson has found a woman who he's fallen in love with at first sight. And though his parents try and dissuade him a little bit, he insists, get her for me, she's the right one for me. Literally, get her for me, she's right in my eyes. So outwardly, Samson is a Nazarite, set apart for God. But inwardly, he's not really concerned with what is right in God's eyes. He's concerned with what is right in his eyes. And it would be difficult to read this without equating the failings of Samson to the failings of the Israelites. The Israelite people, born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, led from Egypt by Moses into the Promised Land by Joshua, could not have had a more auspicious beginning. But like Samson, their story in Judges is a story of wasted potential. Though they were circumcised according to Abrahamic covenant, they inwardly did what was right in their own eyes, which inevitably led to them doing what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And I think it would be easy here for me to leave my finger pointing at the failings of Samson and the Israelites. But really, we are no different. 
We have an inexhaustible ability to see faults in others and miss them in ourselves. George Carlin once observed a universal rule of the road. Every driver slower than you is an idiot, and every driver faster is a maniac. We, on the other hand, we are the golden mean. When it comes down to it, we all, like Samson, naturally tend to do what is right in our own eyes. We, like Samson and the Israelites, have a capacity for self-righteousness that's not stifled by our sin, but is instead inflamed. The more we do wrong, really, the less likely we are to face our own depravity. Instead, we're happy to dwell in a pit and just rationalize everything we do as right in our own eyes. So what's the solution to this? What we need is a judge above us, an objective judge, to pass an objective verdict. But of course, the problem with that is any objective verdict for us is assuredly guilty. We do what is right in our own eyes, and when we do, we do evil in the sight of the Lord. So what we need is not only a judge who dispenses justice, and gives us an objective verdict, we need a king and a savior who will take our well-deserved judgment upon himself rather than dispense it thus. Because our judgment would crush us. We need a king who is strong enough to be crushed for our deliverance. He'd have to shine his light in our pit of sin and without condemning us for our sin, lift us out. And he'd have to be a judge that a sinful man dares approach. A savior who condemns sin, but justifies the sinner. Then we sinners can stand up, we can confess what we are. It's not until we figure out that we are truly not right in our own eyes and humble ourselves before Christ that we are justified by his mercy and grace. In that instance of confession, we go from being right in our own eyes to being right in God's eyes. And this is a concept illustrated in Luke 18, 9 through 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which reads, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down upon everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So really, we are left with a choice. We can either justify ourselves in our own eyes, like the Pharisee, and be wrong in God's eyes, or we can humbly confess that we're wrong in our own eyes, like the tax collector, and through Christ become justified in God's eyes. And this is the miracle of the judge who determines our guilt but by his blood justifies all who put their faith in him. This is the miracle of Jesus. And here in Judges 14, Samson is doing exactly what is right in his eyes. For his own reasons, he wants this Philistine woman for his wife. Get her for me, she's right in my eyes. 
And yet we see God uses Samson's self-seeking behavior to fulfill his will for Samson, his purpose for Samson. Verse 4 says, His parents did not know this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time they were ruling over Israel. So Samson was going to be used by the Lord to confront the Philistines. And God did use Samson mightily to confront them. But here we see that God used Samson despite his propensity for sin, not because of it. Clearly what Samson was doing was wrong. Should one who is not only an Israelite but a Nazarite, devoted to the Lord, seek to become one, to become the husband of a worshiper of the Philistine god Dagon? Should a man destined to fight Philistine oppression seek a wife among those who are his sworn enemies? But God would use this marriage to begin an enmity between Samson and the Philistines that would influence the rest of Samson's life. So what if Samson had dedicated himself to his Nazarite vows and sought to do what was right in the Lord's eyes and not his own? I think that it's fair to suppose that God may have used Samson in a far greater way than he did if he had chosen to dedicate himself to doing the Lord's will and not his own. In 2 Timothy 2, 20-21, we read, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are there for special purposes, and others for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made wholly useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Samson's story, while wondrous, is still a sad tale of a man who had much given to him but wasted his potential. And I believe that God has a use for each one of us. We are all here on earth for a purpose, for a purpose that God has in mind for us. We all have a wonderful potential that can be realized when we dedicate ourselves to doing God's will, doing what is right in his eyes and not our own. Samson never understood this. His life was full of conflict and anger and unhappiness and tragedy. The women he chose were a constant source of irritation to him. He was always responding to a slight that the Philistines did to him. He lived in a cave for much of his adult life. And eventually he was imprisoned and made to perform for the Philistines for their amusement. But God used him to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistine hands. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a Samson. I would like to cleanse myself, to be made holy and useful, so that my life will be one working in harmony with my Creator and not a life that is used by God despite what I'm doing. I want, to be, I want to set my heart on God's will, my eyes on what is pleasing to Him. And I suspect that that's not only my desire, but yours. So how do we do that? How do we transform ourselves from people who seek earthly desires to people with renewed minds who know God's perfect will for us? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 12. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If our desire is to know and do God's will, we're called to be living sacrifices, ongoing sacrifices. This is a call to continually focus ourselves on God, on his awesome power, on his commandments, on his love for fallen humanity, and on what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. We're called to be a living, ongoing sacrifice, demonstrated throughout our life. And we're told that when we do, our mind will be transformed, and we will be able to determine God's will for us. This next week, I'd like to give you homework this week. <laughs> this next week, try these two very simple prayers. When you wake up, before you even get out of bed, just kind of as you're rousing. Pray to God. Pray, Father, help me to honor you today in my thoughts and through my words and actions. Help me to demonstrate Christ's love to everyone I interact with today. And then when you lay down at night, before you go to sleep, pray again and say, Father, did I honor you today in my thoughts and through my words and actions? Did I demonstrate Christ's love to everyone I interacted with today? Show me ways to be more like Jesus tomorrow. What I'd like you to do is focus yourself this week on those two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you, like Samson, have had an auspicious beginning. Don't waste your potential. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the ability to do your work through Jesus. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to become justified in your eyes and to seek your will and to know your will so that we won't waste our potential pray that you go with us this week. Help us to seek your will, to show your love to the community, to the world that needs it. Help us to honor you throughout this week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was preparing the sermon this week, I got some advice from my father. Because I got to the point when I was talking with him where I said, well, Dad, this can either be a really long sermon this week or it could be a short one. He said, go with short. So, <laughs> so you have him to thank. <laughs>